Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So I am loving this show, you guys. I'm loving getting to have a dialogue with you twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. I'm loving getting to talk to interesting people. When this show started back in May, I thought the quarantine wouldn't last that long. And that was naive, obviously, because here we are several months into it at this point. But I also wasn't sure how long this show would last. I imagine it going maybe 10 episodes if I was lucky. Today's number 18, which is just crazy to me that there are still people that want to talk to me and that I still have questions about sort of where we're headed as entertainers, as artists, as part of this this industry. And what's been really cool is just to get to talk to people from all across the entertainment and media landscape. And one area that I know is a blind spot for me is live theater. At this point in my life, I've got two little kids and I just, I don't have a chance to go out that much. And when I was younger and I had the time, I didn't have the money to do it. So it's a medium that I love. It's just not something that I get to see all that often. And I'm definitely not hip to sort of who's who in the in the theater scene. But I was lucky that I got introduced to Lee Silverman. She is one of the great directors of theater in New York. She's done Broadway. She's done Off-Broadway. She's won two Obie Awards. She's a Tony nominee. She's the real deal. And she's one of the few female directors in live theater as well. And so we talk about that. And we talk just about sort of what the future is. You know, Broadway has been one of the first groups to come out and say, we're not going back to work for a long, long time. They're talking about January 2021 at this point at the earliest. And it sounds really, really sobering just to hear something so far out on the calendar and just realize that there are so many people that that decision affects. We think about the actors and the musicians, the directors, but it's all the technical people, lighting and sound and you know, makeup, hair, costuming, all the ushers. You know, there's a whole industry that is just shut down right now because of coronavirus. And frankly, New York's in pretty good shape. (laughs) So I think for those of us in other parts of the country that are saying, well, reopening's right around the corner. We're going to get there, especially in the entertainment space. Broadway might be the place to look right now and just say, you know what? Maybe this is really going to be a long time before things can be normal again. And obviously Broadway has a very different set of circumstances. The live audience plays into it in a way that it doesn't as much on a TV and film set, but it still just feels a long way away. So I'll tell you, I really enjoyed talking to Lee just about the live theater scene and and thinking about that world because again, it's one that has fascinated me, but it's not one that I know intimately. And I did some live theater growing up. I went to a drama camp one summer and did a couple of school plays and, and things like that. But just as I as I matured in my career, I gravitated more towards television. But there is there is a piece of live theater that I just I love. And I was reminded of that talking to Lee. We talk a little bit about Hamilton that's streaming now on Disney Plus. And I remember seeing the buzz around July 4th when that started streaming and just everybody on Twitter going nuts about how great it was. I didn't get a chance to see it live when it was on Broadway. So this viewing on Disney Plus would have been my first time watching it. And I really wanted to enjoy it. I really wanted to have time to to sit down and just watch it all in one sitting as close to the live theater experience as I could get in my own home. So 
we're lucky. My mother-in-law lives about five minutes away and she has been sort of in our same quarantine bubble from the very beginning. Since March, we've gone to her house, she's come to our house, and we've just sort of decided that even though we're two separate households, we're going to sort of quarantine together across that five-minute distance. And so she took our kids for a sleepover this weekend, and my wife and I watched Hamilton. Because it's funny, our house isn't that big. And so when the kids go to bed, we can't really put on the TV without disturbing them or certainly can't watch it with any sort of volume. So my wife and I often will just watch TV, quote unquote, in bed, which is an iPad. And we each share one AirPod. And I didn't want to experience Hamilton that way. I didn't want to watch it on a tiny iPad with with AirPods. I wanted to see it as big as I could and as loud as I could. So my mother-in-law was gracious enough to take the kids and we watched Hamilton and it moved me. And it did, I think, all the things that, that theater is supposed to do. It gave me a lot of empathy. It made me think a lot. It reframed how I saw the history lessons that I had been taught all through my school. And it made me want to dig in and learn more and figure out if the stories that I had been fed all along, just how sanitized they were or how romanticized they were or what narrative they were trying to push and what what's the real truth. And if you viewed history through a critical lens, what would that really look like? So anyways, you'll hear me mention to Lee that I hadn't seen Hamilton yet. Obviously, I talked to her before I saw it. Now I'm telling you I saw it, and I loved it. And I can't wait to see live theater again. It's been a long time since I've seen a show live, and uh, and I miss it. Lee Silverman actually came to me through the Mrs. Maisel world. If you listened last week, you know that The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is one of my favorite shows, and I talked to Michael Zegan and Maren Hinkle, two of the stars of that show, So Lee actually directed this music video that you may have seen. It's been kind of going around virally. If you haven't seen it, go check it out on YouTube. It's phenomenal. A majority of this video was shot from home with actors and dancers and musicians all recording their parts from home and Lee directing them over the phone. Uh, It's basically a video that shows the music that Shy Baldwin, one of the characters in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, performs throughout season three of the series and it was a video that's done as a four-year consideration for the emmy awards the goal being to try to get some of those songs nominated and potentially even win uh, best original song so lee worked very closely with all the talented craftspeople that make marvelous mrs Maisel, the editors the wardrobe and made a video that really captures the essence of the show but was done under quarantine So that's where the quarantine creatives tie comes in, and that's where the Maisel tie comes in. But for me as a TV director, having a chance to talk to a theater director was really exciting too. So here it is, my conversation with Lee Silverman. Hi, Lee. How are you? Hi, Heath. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. How uh, how have the last four months been treating you? Oh, I mean, amazing. What could be wrong? (laughs) Just a global <laughs> pandemic and yeah, civil unrest. You know. Sure, sure. You know, the full evaporation of my profession, pretty much. You yeah. know, it's uh, it's been a rough few months. But uh, it's, um, you know, I think we're we're all trying to um, find, find a way through it and actually to uh, hopefully be in a 
better, more just world on the other side. Yeah, that is sort of the silver lining in all this is it does feel like there, I, I hope anyways, that there are some big structural changes coming to our society, you know, absent the pandemic, that that feels like a whole separate issue, but just sort of a just a more, you know, equitable, fair, just place to live. Like that's, that's the world I want to live in. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like what's the point of coming back, you right. know, unless we're able to really make change happen, but there's a lot of uh, deep, deep, deep systemic problems, you know, that I think we're, we're really reckoning with. I mean, as a country, as a people, as citizens, as artists, I mean, it's a really, really, it's a very deep, difficult time. Yeah. It's really something on top of just generally being afraid of being sick. Right. And it just sort of makes you realize the fragility of all this, that like you yeah. grow up sort of thinking that everything is a certain way and there's a certain permanence to everything and a certain structure to it. And then, you know, it, it can take something as simple as a little virus to just kind of wipe that all out. Yeah. Certainly I've felt like, oh, we could only fall so far, but it turns out, I think that uh, we actually had no idea how how far we could go yeah. and how much could possibly implode. And, and it may still be that we were not even there yet in right. terms of the full implosion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's such a mix of um, weird, weird hope um, and uh, like catastrophic <laughs> pain yeah. or something. I don't know. It's very interesting. All right, where are you? Uh, I'm in the Boston area, but like oh, okay. suburban, you know, so I uh, I yeah. went to school at Emerson College in Boston and have lived out here ever since then. So the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, something like that. So it's... Uh, it's nice, but it's, you know, I feel I'm I'm eager to talk to you because I'm very removed from the theater scene, you know, and oh, just yeah. it's not especially now I've got two little kids. So like for the last oh. seven, eight years, like I have had no nightlife at all, let alone, you know, right. getting out to see shows and stuff. So um, but I actually my background is I, I'm a TV director. Uh, I, I uh, directed uh, This Old House, uh, Ask This Old House, a spinoff of This Old House for many years on PBS. Oh, yeah. uh, so, yeah. you know, it's. It's just interesting sort of that director can mean so many different things, even just within the TV world, but then comparing sure. like film to TV directors and then, you know, stage to film and TV directors. Like, just, how do you when, when people ask you about your job, like, what do you tell them? How do you explain what you do? <laughs> um, that is a fantastic question. Primarily, the work that I do is on new plays and on world premieres. Um, so I work very, very closely with playwrights to shape and bring world premiere production to life. And that frequently means um, being deep in development with the writer um, as they're writing and shaping the material, um, translating that vision to a design team, communicating that vision to a company of actors, um, frequently adjusting every second along the way, the script and the design, and then ultimately to take all of that and like be be a conduit for an audience to understand it for to have it be legible theatrical exciting unexpected and um uh, give uh you know real uh voice to either underrepresented voices or a story that people haven't heard before or a story they have heard told in a new way yeah. um so that an audience can walk out feeling like they've had a real experience and and the experience that um that has been uh you know kind of our north star the writer and i all the way through so because i do almost entirely new work um my primary collaborator is always with 
um, with a writer or writers, whether it's on a musical or on a on a play. So I think it's kind of the same. It the job is always the same, but completely different in the sense that every project is its own snowflake. Sure. Um, and the you know it's also kind of nothing but problems um, from from the moment you start working on something, and it's there's a ton of just fixing things as you go along. That's a big part of directing, right? It's just kind of yeah. rolling with the yeah. punches and just okay, yeah. what's going to happen today? How do I solve that? How do I you yeah. know get us to the next piece of this? Uh, yeah. How how early are you collaborating with the writer? I mean, like, do they have a script at, at that point? Or are you coming in like as they're starting to sort of form the script? It's really different with every project, and sometimes um, it, in with even some writers who I've worked with multiples of times, even you know within their body of work that we've done together, it's like sometimes the script is sort of fully it's a fully baked cake when I get it. And sometimes it's like, Oh, I have this idea. Can I pitch it to you? Here's what I think should happen. Here's an outline. Here's the first sentence, you know, that kind of thing. And then, you know, frequently in those kinds of situations, I'll work with them over many years to, to, to bring that play into existence. And it's really a kind of leap of faith, I think, for both of us in terms of being able to not only get the thing sort of written, but get it to a place where it's produced and enticing for, for theaters to produce it. And um, also that there's a, you know, the, the development part of it, the process part of it is a very big part of kind of getting a new play onto the stage. Yeah. It can sometimes take years. Sure. And during that collaboration, like what, what are you adding to it? Just sort of helping, helping the writer sort of figure out visually what's going to be compelling and, and sort of how to, how to, how to make it more captivating or like what, yeah, you know, what's your role in that? Sometimes. And sometimes it's like, you know, a writer will say here, I wrote this, I wrote this scene and I'll read it and I'll say, Oh, what were you hoping that the scene was doing? And they say like, Oh, well, I'm just feeling like it's this really dark take on X, Y, and Z. And I'll say, Oh, that's really interesting. I thought this, or, you know, frequently what my job is, is to hold a mirror up to the writing. And sometimes that's through conversation. Sometimes that's through uh, using, you know, being in a rehearsal process and having the actors act something out. And I'll say like, this isn't working. Is it the direction? Is it the ground plan? Is the kitchen sink in the wrong place? Is it, you know, if we're on stage, is it, is the lighting too bright? Is it too dark? Are they wearing the wrong costume? You know, it's sort of up to me to figure out what it is or to say like, the writing isn't, you know, doing its job here. We need to communicate it in a different way. You know, I think that working with writers and really being able to um, dig into the dramaturgy of what their vision is and then how to best put it on on paper, you know, and different writers want a different amount of um, input. And um, sometimes writers will want you to really work with them as more as an editor. And yeah. sometimes they're like, I really want to write this story. I don't know how to do it. Here's a bunch of attempts, you know, where, where is the play in here? Um, again, it's like every, every project is a little bit different. And, um, because really I, I like working on new work so much that those questions are, are a really big part of that. That collaboration is a really big part of why I direct theater is because I really enjoy, um, maybe um, in a kind of masochistic way, uh, the kind of sense of the unknown and the birthing right. of that new thing. Yeah. And it's interesting sort of when it starts taking on a life of its own, right? Like there, there's a moment where you're very much almost parenting this project and, and kind of, you know, willing it into being. 
And then all of a sudden it just, it grows legs and it starts walking. And, and, you know, some of those questions you wrestle with, it reveals itself in ways that you probably don't expect early in the process, right? Yes, exactly. And, and with musicals, it's, you know, you have even more moving parts and different things that could be working or not working. You know, of course, you never really know what you have until you put it in front of an audience and you start to get feedback. You feel people energetically leaning forward, leaning back. And it really is, I mean, it's really such a, the difference between TV and film and theater in that way, because you have a kind of, you know, the, the process by which plays really get made ultimately happen in front of an audience right. with the audience feedback. And so the trick is how to really put it in front of an audience before you're ready so that you can learn what you need to know before you put it in front of an audience, you know, again, um, yeah. when you're, when you're more ready and how are you ever ready? And uh, a frequent collaborator of mine, um, David Henry Wong always says he, he never, actually finishes a play it just opens right and you know and i do think that that is that is part of a, a rigorous process is that you keep sort of working and working and working on something um you know kind of until the moment where they are, are toasting you at your opening night right well it's funny too because like with a film or a tv show like you make this thing and you put it out there and sort of once it's out there, it's like an email, like you can't unsend it, you know, it's just, it's out there as yeah. is. And like with a yeah. film, you know, it could live on for a hundred years after that with a play, it's kind of a constant dialogue, right? Like you're, you know, you can tweak every single performance or based on, you know, the mood or energy of the audience on any given day, right? The performers and everyone else can kind of pick up on that and, and modulate a little bit, right? Yeah, well, it's a it's a living thing, so yeah, it changes, right. you know, a little bit all the time. Although I would actually say that movies can live on forever, whereas theater is very ephemeral. Yeah, and uh, it's it's very hard to capture the experience of being in the theater. I think you know we've certainly there's examples of people who have tried, and you know sometimes it works out better than others. But it's a it's very hard to capture an experience that's designed to be felt by multiples of bodies at the same time and where the intention behind the whole event is to have a kind of group communal experience of some sort and it's calibrated right. for that kind of experience yeah. um, to then capture it on film and to keep it it's sort of meant to be a happening it's meant it's by design a thing that happened on that night and that night only it's why it feels so exciting when the lights go down right. because even if it's a show a long-running show that tuesday night that you're sitting in the theater where that thing happened in that way yeah it, it, it yeah it does it changes I, I wonder just sort of the you know hamilton came out on disney plus this week and has been sort of all the talk online it's, i haven't had a chance to watch it yet have you have you had a chance to see the the film version of it i have seen it yes yeah so what's your take on so i've i've heard a lot of people saying like we should do more of this there you know plays should be more accessible people should film more theater like what was your take on hamilton and what's your take on that concept generally i mean i feel like there's a lot i mean there was quite a bit of um effort that went into that capture sure. um of that of that show and um certainly uh it was done beautifully and uh i think is quite remarkable i think national the national theater in london at the nti live um they do similar things and that opera has done you know similar really incredible captures of some opera and i think that accessibility is exciting to me and when i think about you know what a, what is a positive upside to this time where people are at home and when there is no theater is it is 
hopefully the idea of doing um, some kind of capture for theater in the future, some sort of further accessibility so that it can be. I mean, right now you can watch, you know, plays that were streaming in other parts of the country and other parts of the world, things you never would have had a chance to see um, because it was never a thing that people would put theater online. And, And I do think that that's an incredible kind of upside to this moment. I mean, the public um, put a show, a Richard Nelson play, the Apple plays, and uh, they did it as a Zoom reading and 17,000 people watched on the first night. Wow. And, you know, you just think like it at the public theater in New York, in a theater that holds 100, 200 people, even if the show extended and extended, it wouldn't have 17,000 people in the whole run. Right. And so that kind of accessibility is truly like an upside to this moment and certainly people loving the Hamilton stream that's a real upside people remembering how much they love theater that's a real upside but I don't think it takes away from the experience of being in a room with other um, with other bodies and I don't know that there's really a way to capture that I think that for the moment part of what feels so incredible about that capture is that is that there's a, a tremendous amount of skill that Tommy, the director, had in 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 making it feel as close to a live experience as possible. And I also feel like we're hungry for that, like right. we're nostalgic for that feeling. Yeah. And as you say, it's not going to replace that. And in some ways, it feels like it's something that will whet people's appetite more than <laughs> just like, oh, I've got to see this in person or I got to go see some some local theater, you know, just it, yeah. it's not it's not a replacement. It's not you know, no. either or. It's hopefully right. an and. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, I want to just sort of talk about your beginnings in theater, too, because I, I read an interesting thing that um, y- one of your first jobs was as a PA on the touring company for Rent, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was like a formative thing for me. I grew up in Cleveland, so like there was very little theater, but I went, I think I went in fifth grade and again in maybe seventh or eighth grade uh, twice to see Rent. And being from a very just kind of homogenous white bread suburb uh, without, you know, a lot of diversity racially, sexually, you know, in so many ways, just to sort of see such a diverse cast and so many different people represented was really eye opening for me. At, you know, this is like 10, 11 years old, but just that that experience definitely stuck with me. And it's sort of lit an interest that you know when i'm in new york like i try to see shows when i can or you know we, we've got the, the theater game in boston has been stepped up tremendously in, you know the last 10 years yeah. or so they've really renovated yeah. a bunch of theaters and stuff but like for you i guess starting on rent like wh- what what did you take away from that experience oh that's such a good question i mean i i was such a, a theater nerd my whole life and yeah. um did theater when i was a kid and I had gone to Carnegie Mellon for a pre-college program and then was admitted into their directing program. So I started kind of my senior year of high school knowing I was going to a drama conservatory while I was there. I I had the opportunity to be, I was an undergrad theater director, but I was also a graduate um, playwright. So I had really devoted my, those years that I was in college to doing literally nothing but theater. I worked on like 57 shows in four years or something. I mean, I was like, I was just like, get me to New York. Like I was one of those people who just, it's always been my thing. And I had interviewed at the New York Theater Workshop in, I guess, the fall of 95 for um, an, you know, like to be an intern for the following summer after I graduated from, from college. And I had picked the New York Theater Workshop because 
they um, were were one of the few theaters that I kind of knew about that really like focused on new work and seemed to be doing all these really, really cool plays. And I was just like so excited to go to their offices and interview. And, and when I went for my, you know, big interview to be an intern, they were working on on rent. And um, and I was really excited about it. And I went back and, you know, had finished my senior year of college when the show opened and was running at New York Theater Workshop. And so by the time I graduated college and moved to New York and was an intern, which basically meant I was sitting in the, at the front answering the phones, right. um, rent had already opened, run at New York Theater Workshop and had moved to Broadway. And, and um, during I think my first or second week of being an intern there won the Tony. So it was, it was a very exciting time. Um, and I was very lucky to have been in that place at that time. And it, it was from there that, um, that I became involved in being a PA on their, on the first national tour. And we rehearsed in New York and then, um, actually opened in Boston. Oh, cool. Um, and that's where the first part of the, the tour had been. And I, I have to say that, it was a show that I saw so many times. I mean, I, I saw it so many times right. and I um, was so moved by the storytelling yeah. and that show, like many shows that have changed. I mean, Hamilton is another example that has changed the form. It is, it is the reason why there's nothing like theater. I mean, it's like, those shows that show you a world that you had no idea was out there and yet feels like your world. Yeah. Like that is the incredible intersection of like a great, I think a great piece of art in general, but in particular, a great piece of theater. And um, I had that when I saw one of my first shows, which was Lily Tomlin's one person show um, signs of intelligent life. And I, I saw Lily Tomlin do that show. And I was like, I had no idea that's what theater could do. That's what language, could do that's what acting was I mean it was like I think I was 10 or 11 years old and um I was sitting way up in high seats up at the Kennedy Center and she was on a tour and it was that was it I was like this means like it's changing the shape of my brain while I'm watching it and I think that that's that's the experience that that we have when we see something that is simultaneously blowing our mind with its uniqueness while feeling like it is literally inside of our own hearts and we didn't even know. Right. And it's so um, it's so thrilling when that happens. And, and Rent was a perfect example of that. And it was um, being able to, to be in the right place in the right time at that moment was, um, was a really um, lucky thing for me in my career and, and many, many years um, of my early life I spent at New York Theater Workshop being, uh, I, I answered the phones, I was in the box office, I did telemarketing, I worked backstage, um, and I, I really learned so much from my time there. And um, uh, they were a very, very big part of many of the artists that I have um, come to, have, that have come to be, um, you know, my, my closest collaborators. Yeah. It's funny just thinking of, you know, so I don't mean to dwell on rent so much, but just one little yeah. anecdote that it came to my head the other day. And I mean, this is 20, 25 years ago. Like I, it, it was something that I completely forgotten. But I remember after seeing the show coming in, like wearing, I bought the sweatshirt or the T-shirt or, you know, some souvenir. This is the second time I saw it. It must have been in eighth grade. And I remember one of my teachers had also seen it the same weekend and was just like disgusted that like I was wearing the shirt and I'm like what are you talking about and she was just she was this very homophobic lady that very conservative and was just like I don't want to go see men kiss each other 
and I was like defending it as an eighth grader, just like, no, it's it's that's you missed the whole point, lady. Mm, like this right. is about like love is universal. It doesn't matter what for like how could you miss that? And again, yeah, just to open my eyes to that, that I don't know that without without feeling that empathy, without, you know, just being exposed to this world, as you say, that felt very familiar, but wasn't my world that that I would have necessarily, you know, gone to bat in that way at that at that early right. age. But, you know, it, right. it's important to have that conversation, I think. Yeah, totally. I love that. Yeah. And so then for you, like moving on to to getting into directing and stuff, like what was that career arc for you? I mean, thankfully, somebody told me that I was a terrible actor. And (laughs) that was that was really it. And actually, I had the really good fortune of being told that I was a terrible actor um, when I was young. So that was good. And, um, and also humiliating, of course. But then, um, the person who said that to me said, you know, you're really smart and you talk about plays really, really well, and you should think about directing. It's so funny to think about this now because that was like, I was like 15 years old when that happened. And I really have staked my whole life on what that person said to me for really no good reason, except that it, I was like, yes, I'm a director. And, um, (laughs) And that was it. And uh, I really um, was so grateful because she, at that time, this woman handed me Chekhov and Ibsen and Shaw and so many incredible plays. And I really um, started to think about that there was another way forward. And also, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and there was Arena Stage, which was run by Zelda Fitchhandler. And so I also had the luck of um although i wasn't we we didn't go to to arena stage but i knew that it was run by this woman who was essentially the the mother of regional theater you know who really started the movement at the time and there was an example of a woman who directed and who ran a theater and and that she was in my consciousness as a as a person and that so i knew that there was that that was possible and it it was startling to me as i got older and went to college how how I realized that that was actually a total anomaly. Mm. And in 2006, I directed my first Broadway play and I was only the seventh woman to ever direct a straight play on Broadway. Wow. And I was, I mean, that's a, that's a terrible statistic. And, um, and it's, of course, things have changed to some extent since 2006, but, but not all that much. And it's really, I, I think probably similar to the, film and tv world it's it's actually quite unusual to have women and even more unusual to have um, people of color circling around any of the of the projects that have a lot of money attached and so you you might find um that there's more gender parity in the smaller theaters off broadway and regionally but when you get closer to broadway there's just fewer and fewer um women and it's um it was really really a shock to me to to start to realize just how, um, in a way, how backwards the theater was, given that it's sort of people who make theater feel that it's a very progressive place. And, you know, I think that it's one of the things actually that the theater community is really reckoning with right now, which is that um, many people who have benefited from it being a kind of fantasy of a progressive place are now having to reckon with what would it really look like if it was really a place of progress, if it was really an inclusion, a place of inclusion, and if there was um, room room for everyone or at least more people and more voices at the table. I I think we're all learning that it has to be a conscious choice. You can be blinded by your own biases without even being aware of them. 
you know, and, yeah. you, and you sort of have to say, okay, what can I do to get more women at the table, to get more people of color, to get more alternative voices? You know, you, you sort of have to seek that out and and check yourself, I think. It, 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 as you say, just the momentum of, of sort of the machinery of it all, right? It, it's not it's not geared to elevate those voices in the way it should. Yeah. And I think that's only, it's really only news to people who haven't had to think about that. Yeah, um, right. and I think it, 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 uh, it is, um, it has been for sure the way, the way until this moment and, and hopefully this time will, will lead to, um, a, a much deeper systemic change, um, in the, the way that, people are invited um into the theater yeah well you, you talk about your first directing gig in 2006 um it, the lifespan of a fact that was like two three years ago something like that right and like it was the first uh, all-female design team that you brought in yeah um yeah like that feels like in whatever you know 2017 2018 it shouldn't be a headline but it was it's, yeah. it's sort of what we've been talking yeah. about like how do you get better representation into the theater space it's such a interesting question because the thing that i always say is like all you have to do to have uh more women and people of color is hire them um and you know i it's actually not that complicated or hard i mean you look at the statistics so when we did lifespan of the fact it was the first all-female design team i did not know that it was the first all-female design team somebody brought that statistic to me um i didn't realize it was news it's it's sort of shocking and terrible that that is news you know in 2010 there was the uh there was only one black director on broadway but also in 2020 there was only one black director on broadway so you know there's a way in which the uh the environment has changed but it hasn't changed it's changed for some but not everybody it again it it, we need to be um if theater wants to be a place of progress and a place of inclusion um it has to be that way on all levels including at the highest at the highest level on broadway and and i think as another example this season i directed a play called grand horizons written by Bess wall she was the only female playwright on broadway this season the only now of course the season was short but even if the season hadn't been cut short she would have still been the only female writer on broadway this season really like we can't do better than that so i think that um that we have a long way to go yeah well and you've been you've been pushing for that and and fighting for that and and that's uh that's a big important thing i think to have an advocate (laughs) that's that's bringing this to to people's attention um, I, I do want to talk about another project that you've done kind of during this quarantine time, and that's uh, this uh, this video you directed for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, yeah. which was all uh, sort of it, it was it's a four year consideration video for the Emmys uh, for their best original songs. Uh, you know, the, the music that Shy Baldwin sings uh, in the third season. How did I guess, first of all, how did you get sort of attached to that project? It, it's so the whole that whole video is such an incredible um, example of. Um, just sort of saying yes to something and you don't really know what it is. Um, It was, it was truly developing in real time as we were working on it. And um, I know Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino. They were producers on a musical I directed called Violet um, with Sutton Foster that we did on Broadway in um, 2014, 2015. And uh, they are, um, just unbelievable, remarkable human beings, artists, friends. And um, I have spent some time 
um, shadowing them on the Maisel set and just um, being being a friend um, around. And I just think it's such an extraordinary show. Yeah. And weirdly, this job did not come to me through them. Um, it was it was a, another producer from Amazon had called um, and said that they were uh, looking to shoot this uh, video, that it was going to include some elements that had to do with a kind of like capture um, they weren't really sure what it was going to be. There were going to be singers and dancers and actors involved, but they weren't really sure. And would I be interested? And of course, I um, I said, I, I have no idea, but sounds great. <laughs> and um, what was what was kind of amazing about it was that nobody really knew what was possible. And so in a way, Amy and Dan waited to really write the script for it until we had done sort of beta tests with a few of the dancers and the singers and Darius. And we got a sense of what the inside of uh, Ryan Farrell, who plays Bry Adler, um, what his apartment looked like and yeah. could we could we decorate it? And um, and the whole process was so strange and was so incredible because everyone was working in ways that they've never worked before. It was at the height of the pandemic. Um, we had dancers all over the country that were sent backdrops and white backdrops to dance in front of. They were sent essentially uh, proof of concept videos for them to replicate with um, exactly how to shoot themselves. Right. Um, the the musicians, same thing. Uh, they were sent kind of proof of concept videos of how to shoot themselves wide and close and and closer still all of their videos were uploaded to a dropbox many people were places that it took you know 24 hours to upload all their various videos wow. it was um such a, a crazy endeavor then we had the three singers um the three women and darius and they were all in separate places they were all sent costumes we would zoom with them to check their um their camera angles it required them sort of setting up one device in one place that uh, that we were all on and then they would capture it on a different device they would have to take their iphone or their ipad off of a stand hold it up to their computer to show us how things looked wow. we would make adjustments we would zoom in um, with the costume designer to check on how they um looked the music supervisor was there to make sure that they were um how it all sounded it was such a crazy process. Then they had to film themselves close and in wide shots um, in all their various costumes. They had no idea how we were going to put it all together. We didn't know how we were going to put it all together. <laughs> we had a, a two sort of big shooting days at, at Ryan's apartment where he and his wife were um, just unbelievably generous with us, letting crew people come in. They were masked and had gloves. They rearranged all of their furniture. I watched over Zoom for eight hours on one day as we picked and 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 set up the the scenery. But of course, I'm just standing in my my apartment, peering into my computer, trying to place scenery. I can't right. see anything in 3D. It looks totally crazy. There was a remote control camera that we left in his apartment we sent him um and and his wife costumes and then they had to mic themselves do their own hair and makeup zoom in with the um with the costume designer it was a really wild night of shooting because they were just alone in their apartment with crew hovering outside anytime something needed to be adjusted with the camera ryan and katie would have to go into their bedroom close the door the guys would come in adjust the camera 
go back. They couldn't occupy the same space at the same time. It was just um, unbelievably wild. And then I directed Ryan over the phone. He he didn't even he couldn't see me oh, wow. um, because we could see him, but but he could not see us. So he was just sort of acting in a void in his apartment. And then he would pick up his phone, which was just out of camera, and uh, listen to me give him some direction. He would have to slate himself. He would um, he would just. He was such a sport. I, I can't say enough about what he and his wife did. And and um, and sometimes um, his wife, Katie, would hold the phone and give say what I was saying over the phone to him um, to try not to break his concentration so he wouldn't have to lean down and pick up the phone. There was a shot that she was in. Um, and in that case, the phone had to come down and then they'd have to just do it and then back up the phone and listen together. Um, <laughs> they, it, I was so deeply uh, absorbed in their life and their apartment and what was happening to them. But they wouldn't recognize me if they were sitting next to me right oh, now funny. because they never saw me. And we shot um, those interstitial scenes uh, over the course of a single night. It took about, I don't know, five and a half, six hours. And then they went back into their bedroom and. And then uh, uh, the camera guys came back in. They took the camera away. And then the next day, their whole apartment was um, deassembled. And then everything was moved back into its place. I mean, it's just a wild, wild story. And then the incredible editors and video effects people from Maisel, everybody just got together. And we looked at all the uploaded footage and started to come up with an idea about how to treat all of this quarantine footage. And of course, Amy, who has the high, highest standards of anybody, which right. is why she's such a genius, yeah. was like, I don't want it to look, it can't look like we did it during quarantine. Right. It just has to look better than everything that anyone has ever seen. Um, so of course, it was like no pressure. And then, <laughs> um, and then we just set about to figure out how to showcase that incredible, incredible music. And um, I mean, speaking of Rent, it's really full circle because Darius DeHaas is an original cast member of rent oh wow and um so it was uh such a treat to be able to really i i think of the videos i mean it is truly like a uh a, a love letter to darius he's so talented and and those songs are so incredible and he showcased so well and i just really i mean talk about the level of trust those actors singers dancers and musicians all had to have that um they were just um, it's so vulnerable to to film yourself, to be your own gaff, your own lighting person, yeah. um, to make yourself look. You know, it's just all the things that um, that are usually taken care of by other people on a set. And um, uh, it was just a total um, adventure and 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 labor of of love and and such faith that they all had that um, you know it would that it would sort of look okay in the end. Right. So. With your background in theater, had you done a lot of TV work, or was this was this a new world for you as well? I've I've shot a couple of short films, but okay. I I had never um, directed TV, and I it, it was really wild. Actually, um, the uh, one of the producers after we did this shoot with Ryan, he said that was one of the hardest TV shoots, and I was like, it was my first, and he was like, well, that was really a way to start out. <laughs> well, it, it came together beautifully, and like like you said, just it features the music so nicely, and. Uh, there's something just about the everything about that show is just magical, you know, just the way it's shot, the acting, the the wardrobe. But like, it's 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 one of my favorites. So, I was, oh yeah, yeah, I agree. It's so incredible, and I just think it's so. I mean, you look at the way that those the, the all that the way the show is put together is so extraordinary and it's so unique. And um, it was it's it's just I love watching it. I really do. Yeah, no, I completely agree. 
Um, going back to theater for a minute, uh, I think was it, it's early 2021 now they're talking about for Broadway reopening, right? Like it's, yeah. they've completely yeah. counted out 2020. What do you think? Completely, yeah. yeah. What do you think the reopening will look like? Well, it's really hard to say. I mean, I think it's not going to be like, turn the lights back on and, you know, here we all are. Yeah, fill like, the I house again. A, and, yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be a slow rollout and I think it's going to be messy and chaotic. I mean, I think the theater community, like everybody, is struggling to figure out, um, you know, there's a few people like with, I'm sure, everybody's local restaurants or stores. It's like they're the few brave people and and the people who are like, we're going to be we're willing to be the guinea pig. We're willing to be the first ones. We want to get open. We're going to see how it goes. And then there, there are the other shows that will hang back. And I think that there's quite a bit of. Um, discussion going on right now about not only safety for the audience, but safety for actors backstage. I mean, there's no theater in New York that has a dressing room where you can socially distance. So, you know, usually it's, you know, five people, six people to a dressing room and a chorus of, um, at a musical more. Um, So I think that, that where people are going to be able to be backstage, how they're going to be able to, to be around each other, sing, rehearse. I mean, I think that that all of those safety issues are are very very important. And we had a lot of people in our community who are very who are very sick, and um, people are scared, and and also they really want to get back to work. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of really smart people who are really thinking very closely about what that looks like and how that will happen. And of course, everyone wants it to be soon. And also everyone is quite nervous about the ability to, um, to really do it and do it safely. So, um, you know, right now we have a number of theaters in this country that are open um, in socially distanced ways that have outside theater. And, you know, mm. we'll see how the, how that goes. I, I mean, it just feels like every week, every two weeks, things change anyway. It right. certainly seemed like a couple of months ago, it seemed like, oh, yeah, L.A. will definitely be open first. And and, you know, now L.A. is shut back down. So it's really hard to know. I mean, it, it never seemed possible that New York would be the safest place to be in the country. And right yeah. now it is. Right. Um, so I think that uh, it's it's we just don't we don't know. And um, it's it's very hard when you think about businesses sort of expanding and contracting again opening closing opening closing you just can't do that with right. a film shoot or a tv shoot or a theater i mean you just can't close down for two weeks while people quarantine so right. it's going to be very hard to know really how to move forward certainly until there's a vaccine but really until we have a, a way of really dealing with it and then i think if people know that they can get better that they can get medicine it will be okay and people will be I think more likely to be willing to go to work again, but it, and not until there's a sense that there's, I don't know, a, something to, to take that yeah. would make sure that you, you don't. Um... Yeah. And it's such a tough balancing act right now. I think of like wanting to work for economic reasons, but not necessarily wanting to for safety reasons <laughs> and trying to figure right. out, you know, at what point do those, do those scales tip in a different direction. And hopefully, you know, as a society, we think about how we keep it from, you know, the people that want to stay home and stay safe. We figure out, you know, unemployment or some sort of stipend or, you know, something that just, you know, people don't have to 
go out and expose themselves to this. But yeah, I mean, the UK just gave two billion dollars to the arts. You know, it's like yeah. where's our arts bailout? I mean, I think this is one of the things that we're really struggling with as a community is who can stick with it long enough. Yeah. Um, how will people survive? And um, it's a very very scary time. I think we're you know, we're already losing artists um, in this moment, um, not just because of people being sick, but people not being able to afford living in New York. And, you know, there's just going to be uh, a real deep, deep move away from people being able to do theater and film and television and the arts in general, um, uh, because they're not going to be able to stick it out. Yeah. But they're so vital. I mean, that's uh, this is what the whole conversation's been about. Is just how how art can move you and change you and give you empathy. And you know, it's we got to find a way to. It's not you and I, someone, you know, society. (laughs) We we've all got to figure it out. But uh, yeah, yeah, theater's a piece of it for sure. For sure, and and you know, we have a lot going on right now in this country that needs to be um, digested and reflected back to us through the arts. And, you know, we need we need writers and thinkers and makers of all kinds of different art to help us digest and understand who we are on the other side of this. And, you know, we can't do that if we don't offer support and sustenance for 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 the arts community during this time. All right. Lee Silverman, she was great. And she's so right. We need art more than ever now. And it really makes me think just about how we've devalued art in this society. You know, Carl Reiner died at the end of June. And I remember hearing the story about how he got into acting. It was because of Roosevelt's Works Progress Administration. The WPA was offering drama classes. And so he went to drama school paid for by the U.S. government. And just think about all of the joy that he brought to people over his life, right? The Dick Van Dyke show and the jerk and... And Rob Reiner's dad, I mean, there's just so much that that little investment early on paid off to our whole society. So I hope Lee's right. I hope artists can help us make sense of this time. And I hope we all realize the importance of that art and support it. Give our money to it, you know, go see these shows, go check them out because it's important. Helps us digest who we are. All right. New show on Thursday. Make sure you come back for that. Hit the subscribe button so you'll be the first to know about it. And uh, I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Leave me a note there. Give me a follow. I'll talk to you guys Thursday. Stay safe.